Hey guys, just had an incredible conversation with Brian McLaren. Derek had a crazy week. He wasn't able to be here, so it was just me and Brian. And also my dog, Indigo. I thought I'll have Indigo stay in the room with me. So you're going to hear a little snoring, uh, which we referenced at one point. But Brian was incredible. I've just been reading uh, The Great Spiritual Migration, which I would highly recommend to everyone. We dive into that, which is the deconstructing faith journey. Brian writes in that book, what matters most is not our status, but our trajectory. Not where we are, but where we're going. Not where we stand, but where we're headed. The Christian faith uh, for him is no longer a static location, but a great spiritual journey. And much of this podcast dives into what that journey is. We talked about what so many experience on the journey, that rejection that, that happens around us and how to navigate that in a way that isn't defensive, but that releases life in you and the people around you. We talked about approaching scripture, literalism, and the first time the word inerrancy was ever used. We talked about his most recent book, Faith After Doubt. I had highly recommend this. He goes through the four stages uh, that we experience in our faith walk. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And it's incredible. That's near the end of the podcast. So you got to listen to the end. Uh, Brian has been very impactful in my life. And really, uh, anyone who's on this journey of of faith and deconstruction and reconstruction, uh, whether you know his name or not, Brian has had a huge influence on a whole lot of those that are forerunners today. He is a pioneer of the goodness of God. He actually talks about one of the most pivotal shifts in his life was when he realized that he couldn't think a, a thought about God that was better than the reality. So this is a good one, guys. Um, really honored to have Brian on, and I really think this is going to encourage Bless you guys. You know, one of the things that I thought I'd tell you right off the bat, 15 years ago, uh, when I started writing, I wrote this article and it was, I was a fledgling writer and I wrote this article called Dear Church, Welcome to the Revolution. And it was my first foray and I'd done it for a missions organization. I'd been a songwriter before that. It released and somehow you read it. I didn't know you from Adam, but you sent me the most beautiful email. Oh, that's great. Uh, that I kept for, for many, many years uh, because it was just, hey, well done. Good job. I love what you're saying. I love uh, the, your writing, and I want to just reach out and encourage you. And, <laughs> and uh, so I've always told that story about you. Uh, We've never met, but I have a spot in my heart. I kept that email for a long time because uh, it, it meant so much to me. Oh, that's great. And, and, and here we are now. That's, that's fantastic. Here we are now, yeah. So honored to have you here. Randall Worley is a, is a friend. We've had him on a few times. Oh, what a good-hearted human being. That's great. Yeah. And he kept saying, we got to get you on. And I'm, can you hear my dog? My dog is... I, I just heard a groan. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had the dog in here, but the dog is snoring. And I'm like, oh, I may need to put her outside. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it'd be fine, but she's snoring over here. I think that... I think reality is always better when we bring it into a podcast. That's right. All right. Well, that's what that is then. From here on out, if we hear that, that's my dog snoring over here. <laughs> okay. As long as it's not you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Randall, uh, had, I hadn't read a book from you for a while. And then Randall, I was hanging out with him the other day and he said, Jason, everything you're saying, you've got to go read the spiritual migration, the great spiritual migration. 
And, uh, and I know you've got a new one, so I'd love to dive into that with you. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know that I'm going to be leaning into that one, uh, the Great Spiritual Migration, because it's very much impacting and very much where I'm at right now. Sure. But I would love to start by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the podcast listeners. Sure. Well, I grew up, I was born in upstate New York, but grew up most of my life in the D.C. suburbs in Maryland. Uh, I had no plans to get involved in ministry. In fact, when I was a young teenager, I was pretty sure that I wouldn't stay a Christian, uh, <laughs> partly because I, uh, I thought evolution made a whole lot of sense. And one of my Sunday school teachers said, well, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or evolution. Right. So I thought, okay, you know, four years and I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> but then I had this very powerful kind of spiritual experience in my teens yeah. that really put me on, on the path of following Christ. And I ended up, uh, my plan was to be a college English teacher. I taught English for a few years. Um, uh, Along the way, though, I had helped start a little uh, faith community and eventually became the pastor. I served there for 24 years. And during that time, I was going through a lot of rethinking and um, started writing books and found out that I was, I won't say I wasn't crazy. I'll just say if I was crazy, I wasn't the only crazy person. <laughs> and um, and so I left the pastorate uh, 16 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, hard to believe. Um, and uh, and or I guess it's it's actually 15 years ago. And so in these last years, I, I spent a lot of time with clergy, um, trying to help folks who are rethinking uh, yeah. Christian faith and, and writing and speaking. I've been reading um, The Great Spiritual Migration. First, as a writer, I am in awe of, of your craft. Oh. I actually ran to my wife the other day and I said, I got to read this. This is the most gracious way I've ever read this. But you, you were talking about the journey you were on and you wrote, whether I emigrated or was deported is a question up for debate. <laughs> You were referencing some of the pushback I imagine you've gotten over the years. Yeah, I, I told my wife this is the most gracious way to describe being rejected. <laughs> <laughs> but I love uh, the way you write. I'm um, chasing after you as far as the, uh, the the skill set and the gifting. But I know that you're you were a fundamentalist Christian, right? You came from mm-hmm. the Plymouth Brethren, right? Yes. Which yes. you've mentioned uh, is, is is generously given us dispensationalism and the rapture and. <laughs> Yes. And then along the journey, you became an evangelical. Yes. And I know you use the uh, term, uh, if you scratch an evangelical, you'll find a fundamentalist. Yes. And I think think the the thing I love so much about what I'm reading and when I'm reading you is is the gracious way that you invite folks uh, to continually walk out their transformation, continue to walk out this journey. And uh, I would love to have you maybe tell a little bit more of that journey for you. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I know when people hear the word uh, evangelical today, they think of the religious right and very conservative and all the rest. But, you know, coming from my background and back in the 1970s, evangelical was broader then than it is now. And uh, it was a bigger tent then than it is now. And, uh, and it was just a different vibe. And for me, it meant a lot more freedom than I had as a fundamentalist. Right. Um, uh, but I think um, one of my dear friends and mentors was a, a Canadian theologian named Stanley Grenz. And he said, evangelicalism is kind of like, it's like a rubber band. You stretch it and then it, it snaps back. 
And it, so there are periods of stretching and then it snaps back to fundamentalism. Right. So I think I was continuing to grow and uh, right at the time it was in the process of stretching back. Right. Um, and uh, I re- and for me, I, I was a young pastor. I'd helped start this new congregation. And I re- remember reaching just this kind of spiritual crisis one day. I was sitting on the porch of a friend's house way out in the country in Pennsylvania, writing in my journal. And I wrote, a year from now, I will not be in ministry and I might not even be a Christian. Wow. Um, and, and it was just this feeling I was so out of sync with what seemed to be happening. Um, and that, I think writing those words down was really, really important. Um, and it was, a, I was admitting something to myself, maybe for the first time, that what I was doing was unsustainable. I was fortunate enough that when I began to share both in sermons and just in conversations with the people in my congregation, what I was frustrated with, what I was, the questions I was asking, um, enough of them said, these are not just your questions, they're our questions too, that I was able to, um, to keep working through that process while I was in, in the pastorate. I'll just share one interesting thing that happened. I think it was right after my first book came out in 1998, I was invited to this retreat with a group of, you know, I was a younger pastor then. I was the oldest of this group, but we um, we were at a retreat center in Texas, Catholic retreat center. And I took this long walk early in the morning because I, I was just, my theology was just in turmoil. Yeah. And I remember that day I was standing in front of this tree, uh, um, Palo Verde tree from the desert. And I remember just thinking, it's falling apart and I can't save it. <laughs> and I'm going to have to deal with whatever happens. Wow. So that was, that's been a, a bit of the uh, introduction for me into this process. I'm in my late forties. Yeah. And I would say, you know, when I, when I read that, that gracious way that you described rejection, mm. I loved how you articulated it. I've written myself out of a couple of different churches <laughs> and uh, the main um well, we have this conversation often on this podcast that um, that certainty is is one of the things that has been very dangerous for the church. You know, we've yeah. we've built upon certainty, and yet, I mean, we live in a world where you have to have some element of certainty, otherwise, yes. yeah, this isn't happening right now. And yeah, and we're all trying to find what that certainty is. And, yeah. and the thing that was most transformational for me fifteen plus years ago was um, I had an encounter much or similar to you where I had a moment with God where I really felt like he asked me if he was a good father to which I I responded, which you would say, yes, yes, of course. And and then he said, well, if there's dysfunction in our relationship, if there's desperation in a relationship, it's not on my end is what he said to me. And uh, what he really was saying to me was you can either interact with me based on your perspective or mine and mine is love. Wow. And I, by the time I got home, I made the most profound prayer I've ever prayed. Outside. You know, when I was five, I said yes to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but this was the most transformational prayer to the entirety rest of my life was from this day forward, I will no longer interact with you based on my need. I'll, based, I'll interact with you based on your love. And then what does yeah. that mean as I've unwrapped yeah. his sacrificial love in Jesus? Yeah. What's the main thing that, that, that helped you shift and uh, helped you walk this journey with such grace? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you, uh, it's, I think you just said it a, a few minutes ago, very much what, what 
I, I had a moment, a uh, similar moment, where I was preparing for a sermon. Sitting, I can just picture I was sitting at my desk in my office and uh, while I was a pastor. And it's just like everything dropped away. And I heard these, this word, you have never had a thought of me that is too good. Wow. Um, uh, you've never had a thought of me that is better than what I really am. Wow. And, um, and uh, what, that, what that did for me is it, it was one of the things, it was one of the moments where I think I gave myself permission to say, whatever God is, human language is never going to contain God. Yeah. And so the best the language can do is point and, and it's the difference between pointing and grasping. If you think you have God in your hand, you're not pointing anymore. Wow. And you can pretty much be sure God is not in your hand. Right. <laughs> um, but when you're pointing, you're saying whatever you are is more loving than, than I can even imagine wow. and more good than I can wow. even imagine. And so that, I think, has been the faith that sustained me. As you say, you know, all certainty is relative. And in fact, there is no correlation between certainty and truth. We have people right now who are certain that Donald Trump is still the president. Right. Um, and we have people now who are certain that COVID-19 didn't exist. Right. Um, and, you know, we have people who are certain of all kinds of things. Their certainty has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. It has to do with what they wish were true. Yeah. And they've convinced themselves it's true. Yeah. But so all of our certainty is relative. And that's where, in a sense, your experience and my experience was, a, it wasn't an absolute certainty, but it was a sufficient certainty or a sufficient confidence. Wow. And it, it was compelling to us. And it, in a sense, it lured us or it in, invited us yeah. into the unknown. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it invites you to take the next step. Yes. And, and that's all you need, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And the idea that he's that you can't have a thought that is better than him. Yeah. I mean, that is so profound. That is something that uh, when I look at the life of Jesus, I look at him constantly doing that, yeah. offending one thought with a better thought yeah. over and over and over. I love that. I use this story, and I've probably shared it on the podcast before at this point, but one of the things that was... Uh, profound for me was when I begin to walk down that road, uh, everything starts to open up. Yes. Um, and when love is the foundation, you realize we're having a conversation. I, I tell it this way. When I would say goodnight to my, my kids, and particularly I was discovering this with my youngest at that time, uh, I would say, I love you to the trees and back. And she would say, I love you to the sun, the moon, the stars. And we play this game where, where we all play it, where we compete with each other yes. uh, with measurements. And yeah. what we love about the game is that we're, we're trying to measure something that we understand intrinsically is measureless. It's beautiful. Because the moment I give her the, a string of how much I love her, she responds. She, I remember the first time she giggled and said times two, you know, I just given her a litany <laughs> of my love and she says times two and the game begins again, you know? And, uh, I think from that place, I found such safety. Yeah. I kept finding he was better than I'd been taught and better than the thoughts I'd developed around, you name a hot topic uh, subject right now, and a subject in which I'd found so much us and them language, so much hierarchical thinking yeah. within the church. But what I ran into then was a whole lot of 
um, angry people and a whole lot of rejection yeah. and a whole lot of fear. I just was talking with someone uh, earlier today uh, or interacting with them on Facebook, I should say. And, uh, and they were talking about this, this, the language we use today, this deconstructing journey yeah. and talking about how terrifying it has been for them and also how exhilarating, yes. ultimately leaving them with hope. But then they asked me this question, what next? How, where's my community? Yes. And I always feel a little limited. Uh, and and, and uh, I thought I'd ask you, what is it that you would share with someone who's in the middle of this journey right now, discovering he's better than we think he is? Yes, yes. Well, first, let me just say about the story about you and your daughter. What I love about that, too, is it's playful, and you know it's playful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, and, and that playfulness, I think, is really important in our spiritual life. Wow. We get, as soon as we get really serious and we think, no, I actually love you 3.1417 times more than you love me. <laughs> you know, and we say, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's the playfulness that makes that meaningful. So, wow. and, and there's a certain humility that, that goes, and childlikeness, really, that goes along with it. Yeah, love that. But, um, but uh, what I'd say to your question, Jason, is that if I could make an analogy, if we could go back around 500 years, first to Copernicus and then to Galileo, um, if you and Galileo, I guess it's in the mid 1500s. OK, um, he makes a telescope. Right. He, he he knows how to make a telescope and he buys some finely crafted lenses from Netherlands, I think. Yeah. And he constructs a telescope and he's sitting on his roof and he looks up and he sees Jupiter and he sees moons going around Jupiter. Right. And as soon as he sees that moons are going around Jupiter, he knows Copernicus was right. You know, right. um, that this universe is about things moving around each other. Yeah. And so let's imagine. And, and of course, if you had gone to church and say, actually, the earth is not in the center of the universe, um, they were still wrong, but they were more right than before. <laughs> they said right. the sun is in the center and things are moving around the sun. Um, they would have kicked you out of church. In fact, uh, there was an Italian fellow named Bruno who was uh, was killed because he said that Galileo was right. Wow. Um, and, and I think we're in a bit of a similar situation today. If if people go to a lot of their churches and say what they actually think and see and believe and have experienced um, and admit what they question and aren't sure about and so on, they'll just be asked to leave or they'll be yeah. they'll be condemned or yeah. have demons cast out of them or something, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, and and so what that means, I think, is that, for, first of all, there are a lot of people who are leaving and that's no secret. And and in a sense, they have good reason to leave because they're not wanted as they are. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm writing a, a new book right now. And one of the things I say in this book is it's better to be rejected for who you actually are than to be accepted for a false image of yourself. Wow. And, and so that's going on. So what I think that means is if you find a community where you can be yourself, then thanks be to God and cherish that community and enjoy yeah. it. If you yeah. can't. I think you need to find at least a couple of friends yeah. um, who, with whom you can be honest. And I'll be, uh, I'll be honest with you, Jason. I think podcasts like yours are helping people find each other. Um, it, if someone speaks out, they get a, a followership, they share that with others. Yeah. And that ends up almost forming a community where, yeah. it, you know, when I go in my car and I listen to this podcast, it's safe for certain topics to be discussed. Yeah. And that's what so many people need. 
Yeah, that is so good. I imagine you've navigated rejection. Mm-hmm. I've had to learn how to navigate. One of the things I was sharing with someone recently was that I've discovered that peace comes by revealing, not defending. Yes. I'm on a journey with everyone else. Yeah. And my job's just to reveal. Anytime I get into the defending business, I'll find myself like Peter Garden swinging my sword. <laughs> How uncomfortable is that for me and for everyone else? Yes. But that rejection thing is very real. Yeah. And I would love for you to speak to that, especially that sounds like that's what you're racing at right now or chasing down right now, that being willing to be rejected for who you are. Boy, that's there's something profound there. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll just tell you a quick story in this regard. I'm not, I don't think I'm particularly good at this, but I've had practice. And I guess with practice, you, you at least learn <laughs> from a few mistakes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you two quick stories. I, first, I, I was asked to write an article. I, I've written a book called The New Kind of Christian. Uh-huh. And it got reviewed in a very well-known Christian periodical. And the, the reviewer had somebody do a positive review, some would do sort of a neutral view, and then they asked somebody to do a really scathing review. Oh, fun. And they chose the person on purpose who knew how to be scathing. And then they invited me to respond. And I spent several nights staying up late writing a response. And I was about to hit send, and I read it, and I said, this is so defensive. Right. This is so passive aggressive. Right. And I... <laughs> If, if this is the, what am I, what kind of person am I going to become if I'm involved in this way? So instead of hitting send, I hit delete wow. and started over again and wrote something that I felt was less defensive and more uh, of the way I want to be in the world. Yeah. Um, well, uh, some years later, uh, one of my mentors, uh, someone many people know named Dallas Willard, who died a few years ago. Yeah. And Dallas, um, Dallas uh, was a dear friend. And I, I don't talk about him too much because a lot of people who love Dallas don't like me. And I don't want to tarnish Dallas's reputation <laughs> uh, by being associated with me. But he was very good to me. And wow. one day he gave me something. Uh, it, it was an old, you know, you might, I think you're too young to remember something called ditto, ditto paper or uh, uh, or mimeograph, but okay. before Xerox copiers, it's how you duplicated things. Okay. And so this was an old duplicated paper and it was called a prayer for my enemies. Wow. And um, if anyone's interested, you could go on my website, which is brianmcclaren.net and just put in the little search box prayer for enemies and it'll come right up. And um, it's a prayer by a Serbian Orthodox Bishop who was uh, when the Nazis came into uh, Yugoslavia, uh, the former Yugoslavia, he, uh, he was immediately arrested and sent to Auschwitz to the concentration camp. Okay. And so he knew that the only reason he would be arrested is that the Nazis knew that he had spoken against the Nazis. But the only people that he spoke against the Nazis to were the priests under his own care. So he knew that one of his priests had betrayed him to oh, the Nazis. Right. And he's in jail, uh, in prison, and he doesn't know if he's going to live. And all he can think about I bet it was him. No, I bet it was him. I bet it was him. He, you know, and he was obsessed with this. And so out of that agony, he wrote a prayer, a prayer for enemies. And Dallas gave this to me and and said, I think you're going to need this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had that prayer on my desk for years and I would pick it up almost every day and I would read it and it really helped me. But I, I, I'll just give you a couple lines from the prayer. Um, but people, again, can find it on my website. 
Yeah. Uh, he, first of all, the refrain is this, bless my enemies, O Lord, bless them. Even I bless them and do not curse them. Right. Um, and so it's first the act of doing what Jesus said, to not curse your enemies, but to bless them. And then here's one of my favorite lines. Just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter than an unhunted animal, so I, pursued by my enemies, find the safest shelter in the shadow of your wings. Wow. Uh, and so this beautiful way of saying, I have these people criticizing me. Instead of turning back and fighting them, I'm going to draw deeper into you wow. and let that become an advantage. Anyhow, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful prayer. And that's, that's helped me uh, keep my, whatever sanity I have. <laughs> yeah. I love too that you, um, you had the ability to perceive that if you went down that defensive road, yeah. it would just lead to another defensive road you didn't even want to go down. Exactly. There's no life in it. Yes. And of course, of course, that made a lot of people mad too. They they would say that I didn't give straight answers, but you know they didn't understand. I I didn't really want to argue. It's a little bit like you said. It, in fact, what I find is when you get into an argument, I can't ever remember being in an argument where a person says, "Wow, you've convinced me. I, I guess you're right." You know, right. Uh, what tends to happen in an argument is each party digs in their heels right. and their ego gets wrapped up in their position, yeah. and they can't admit the other person's right. Hey guys, I'm interrupting this podcast for just a minute so I can invite you to partner with us by giving to A Family Story. A Family Story is a 501, a nonprofit, and it's our ministry. And it's what allows for me to produce this podcast and other regular content. We've been living this faith journey for a long time, but 2014 was when we officially stepped away from the traditional pastoring approach to full-time ministry. It's been fun. This journey's been wild. And this last year was no less faith-inducing with COVID affecting travel and speaking. And it's been good, because hey, we started a podcast. Our passion is to create content catalytic for an encounter with the always good, transforming, reconciling love of our Heavenly Father. And so our heart through this ministry has always been that through speaking, writing, film, and music, we're relentlessly sharing the goodness of our Father, the good news. Your giving goes directly to support this podcast, as well as written content, discipleship content, teaching small group messages, articles that we release weekly, and also the book I'm writing. I'm excited about what I'm chasing down right now. We appreciate all the support, whether it's sharing, writing a review, following us, signing up for our email list, or financially. We just love being on the journey with you. If you want to give to A Family Story, you can go to afamilystory.org afamilystory.org and click on the give button. All right, thanks guys. Let's get back to the podcast. Uh, several years ago, I wrote a book called Prone to Love. I was looking at that song, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. Yes. While I was writing that book, I heard the story of my grandmother one, one night. She went to church any time there was a service, just lived to 100, was a saint, you know both her and my grandpa, but, but she was in the service and they were singing that, that part of the song came up prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And my cousin was next to her. She got stubborn and wouldn't participate. And, and my cousin thought, well, something's wrong with yeah. grandma. What's going on? He leaned over and said, what's, what's going on, grandma? Are you all right? She whispered to him, his name was Jonathan. She said, I'm not prone to wander, Jonathan. I love him. Oh, I love that. Beautiful.
And I, it was fun to discover that story as I was writing uh, about the fact that Jesus came to show us that we could live in this confident love, yeah. uh, prone to love. You know, yeah. I remember there was a really well-written um, challenge to what I'd written yeah. using scripture. Somebody had really spent time and I felt this pressure that I had to defend. And I remember I, I stopped doing what I was doing that had been bringing me life, what I, where I was writing. Yeah. And I started writing a, de- a response to this. And I all of a sudden I felt God laughing. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I wasn't in a good mood. <laughs> I heard him laughing. And then he said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? I'm, this is, she's written all these things about. I said, I'm defending him. And he said, well, that's great. Whatever you do, don't make anything up. <laughs> it was the right thing for him to say to me because I realized that was all I could do. Uh, I didn't even have the answers. Yeah. What it did was it completely removed any pressure. I realized I, my responsibility is just to love well and just to chase down the things that he's given me to chase down. And it really released me ever since from having to feel pressure to respond. Yes. Um, but I find so often I'm talking with folks who you know, whether it's family members, I have a young lady right now who she's a heretic, you know, and she's been disowned by her family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I and uh, another person who's who's been kicked out of their church because they're yeah. not convinced in eternal conscious torment. And yeah. so there's so many different people that um, are navigating that rejection. Yes. I think it's really important to be able to learn how to do it in a way that's holistic and yes. continues to bring you into life. Yeah, you know, if folks are, are struggling with that, I, I uh, since I wrote that book, Great Spiritual Migration, I wrote a book called Faith After Doubt. And one of the things I talk about in Faith After Doubt is how we are herd creatures. And and we're, we're really oriented toward belonging to a herd or, or a tribe or a clan or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and when we face rejection, um, it, it goes to the very core of our being. Uh, to our whole survival, our sense of survival, because, you know, part of our brain says, if I don't belong to this group, I can't survive. I depend on them. Yeah. And so it makes us afraid and causes a lot of stress. And, um, and I think understanding that helps us um, to be a little easier on ourselves, but also to be easier on our critics, because there's a good chance that that woman who wrote that piece against you maybe saw some of the truth of what you were saying. Right. But she realized if she were to agree with you, that would put her out of sync with her community yeah. who only wants to emphasize sin. Yeah. So in order to convince herself and demonstrate her loyalty, she had to uh, criticize you. And we get these chain reactions of people defending things that if they've either never really thought about, right. Um, and they're just, you know, like, or they're just making something up <laughs> in order to demonstrate their loyalty and that they're good soldiers in the army. Right. And so that just allows me to say, God bless them. You know, they're, 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 they're afraid. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't have to be angry at them. I don't have to take this person. Yeah. You know, we're, we human beings are all frail. That's so, good. And as you say, and God loves us all. My wife, we learned that was this was a Brene Brown saying as well, but my wife had told me a few years ago, she said, I'm a lot happier when I just assume everyone's doing the best they can. Yes, yes. When I when I can have that grace for people that we're all on a journey and they're doing the very best they can with what they have and what's yes. their experiences, it releases yeah. a grace uh, to interact. That book, um, Faith After Doubt, yeah. I've just started that one. So that's your newer book, right? Yes. 
Yeah. That's the most recent released one. Yes. Uh, there's a phrase you use that, that we're worn out on the fruits of the literal inspired inerrant word of God in scripture. Yeah. That's one of the things that we talk about here often that, that often our approach to scripture is the biggest roadblock yeah. to actually uh, growing in our journey or growing in faith. It's, it is the thing that is used most often to abuse. Yeah. Uh, and it's that inerrant approach. Is that, is that what you're addressing there? Do you get into that? And well, that's one of the issues that is really a challenge for folks. And, um, uh, and I, I do address that there, although I address that in a number of my books. I wrote a book called A New Kind of Christianity right. back in 2010, where I had a couple of chapters just devoted to how we read the Bible. And one of the folks I think who's doing a good job in helping people read the Bible in fresh ways is, is someone named Pete Enns, who has yes. a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Yeah. But... Um, uh, you know, I, I was privileged some years ago to meet a very famous philosopher, and we've stayed and have been friends, Catholic philosopher named uh, Jack Caputo or John Caputo. And uh, uh, Jack, as he, he goes by, right. uh, he, he defines it. We, we used that word deconstruction a little while ago. And he, he, here's a saying he has. He says, deconstruction is not destruction. Yeah. Deconstruction is is lovingly telling the story of something. Wow. And uh, it's a really interesting way for him to define it. Wow. And when you take that word inerrancy and you lovingly tell the story of it, here's what you find out. You go back, and I mentioned Galileo earlier. A lot yeah. of people would be surprised to know this. The first time in recorded history that I'm aware of and that uh, others have been able to point out, um, where the word inerrant was used in relation to the Bible was not by Protestants. It was by a cat by a Catholic responding to Galileo, telling him why he was wrong. Really? <laughs> um, yes, it was a Catholic saying the Bible is inerrant, and and it says that the sun rises. And if you're right, then the Bible is in error. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so this is bef you know this is a long time ago. But another way to lovingly tell the story is to say that. Protestants, when they broke away from Catholics, um, Catholics had what they called the magisterium, which was the Pope and the Cardinals and the history of things they had affirmed. And what they said is, we have to be right because we have the magisterium. And for the Protestants to disagree, they had to challenge the magisterium by a higher authority. So they lifted the Bible up to right. be the higher authority. And then, in a sense, they get it in a one-upping game. Well, the, the Pope is infallible. And Sir Protestant said, no, the Bible is infallible. Right. And, and so when you realize that this word infallible and it, these words infallible and inerrant arose in a particular context, um, and we've inherited that argument, then it gives you the freedom to then say, well, maybe there's another way to look at it. Yeah. And in fact, if you go older in church history to the first few centuries, for example, my goodness, the early church <laughs> fathers were not interested in inerrancy, and they were certainly not literalists. Right. In fact, they tended to say reading the Bible literally is the most immature way to read it. Yeah. There's, they had the analogical and the anagogical and all of these different levels of interpretation, wow. the typological and all these. And, and for them, the Bible was a little more mystical and, and, and an awful lot more literary. And that's yeah. what I advocate people to do. I say, instead of reading the Bible literally, read it literarily. Allow it to be yeah. great literature. Yeah. 
That's so good. There's such a freedom uh, that comes when you when you can begin to read that way. Such a grace. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. Jesus' main literary form was a parable. Yeah. Now, you, for a parable to tell the truth, it doesn't have to be literally true. Yeah. Um, it's it's a work of short fiction whose goal is to tell the truth, and so. Um, again, if someone wants to believe something's literally true, that's fine. But just remember, Jesus spoke in parables, and they didn't have to be literally true right. to be meaningful and to convey divine truth. And and what tends to happen among fundamentalists, and I know because this is my background, is they say you either interpret the Bible literally, as we do, or you throw it out and Peter, P, treat it as a piece of trash. Well, no, there's actually another way to read the Bible sure. that is not neither of them. And such liberty and life in that approach. Yeah. Yes. So you were talking about um, the early church and the most immature way to approach scripture. Yeah. And I'd heard that actually um, probably on Pete N's podcast, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I really love love his podcast and his, and his work. Um but but the book that you've just been writing, you talk about a more fruitful kind of faith yes. uh, that's connected to the spiritual journey. And yeah. you, you use these four words, simplicity, complexity, uh, perplexity, and harmony. Yes. I'd love if you could break that down for us. Sure, sure. Well, um, uh, again, if people are interested in this, they'll find a lot more in, in Faith After God. But the simple idea is this, that we all start in simplicity as children and and the, the center of simplicity is dualism, meaning we sort the world into twos. Yeah. Us, them, friend, enemy, right, wrong, good, bad, um, uh, delicious, uh, yucky, uh, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, safe, poisonous, yeah. right? Uh -huh. We divide the world into twos. Yeah. That's, that's where we start. Sure. Um, and it's very important and there's nothing wrong with it. But here's the problem. A lot of Christians have... And it, by the way, this happens to Jews and Muslims and yeah. Buddhists and even atheists. Um, but a lot of Christians act as if that's all there is. The whole world is summed up in the simplicity of dualism. Yeah. But right. a lot of us live long enough and we go through experiences where, where that, those simple answers aren't, they don't hold anymore. Yeah. You know, we're told Christians are good and we experience some Christians who are vicious. Sure. And we're told Muslims are bad. And we experience the Muslims who are wonderful. Yeah. And when that happens, that pushes us out of simplicity into complexity, where we say, oh, the world wasn't as simple as I thought. And you might say the center of, of complexity is pragmatism, where we say, how do I figure out what's good and bad? How do I figure it out on my own? Yeah. And, um, and how do I think this through on my own? So complexity is where we deal with a more complex world. And a lot of people stay there their whole lives. Um, but some people um, are even pushed out of complexity into what I call perplexity. And this is the stage of deconstruction. Yeah. And this is the stage where we're not just saying that life is a little more complicated. We actually start saying a lot of what I was taught, I think, is actually harmful. Yeah. Um, and I, I've got to really scrutinize uh, what I was taught. I remember for me, a moment like this came when when my... One of my grandfathers, who'd been a missionary in Africa for 40 years, um, started saying racist things, right. things that my parents would never say. Right. And I, I thought, what is going on here? Right. right. I, I had to come to terms with the question, how could a Christian like my grandfather be accepting of racism and, in fact, 
defend racism based on the Bible, how does Christianity coexist with racism? Right. Well, I didn't know it when I was 12 years old and I heard him say that. That's a deep question in America, American history that every white Christian has to take seriously. How, did, right. how could that happen? That's yeah. the work of, yeah. of, uh, yeah. of stage three perplexity. Um, it's also, I mentioned earlier, evolution. It's where you say, well, okay, if evolution's real, then I can't read Genesis 1 and 2 literally. Yeah. How can I read Genesis 1 and 2? Right. And so we, we do that deeper thinking and work. And a lot of people stay there their whole lives, and they don't think there's anything beyond it. But I think more and more of us are saying you know, there's something beyond perplexity that I call harmony. Yeah. And harmony is, it goes right back to where you were uh, before to say, you know what? Ultimately, what really matters is love. Right. And if we cultivate an attitude of love, uh, then we'll work through all of these problems. It won't be easy. It won't be yeah. simple. Yeah. But but yeah. we will. But but the simplicity of love is what guides us forward. Wow. And so, ironically, I think what happens is that that harmony becomes a new and higher simplicity. That if we live long enough, leads to a new complexity. And right. I think the process repeats. So I don't think of it as successive. Like, like trains on a track. I think of them like rings on a tree. Each new stage embraces and expands beyond wow. the previous stage. Wow. But it includes it, right? It, yeah. it's, it's part of it, but then it expands into something bigger. That is beautiful. When you were talking about simplicity, I was thinking of my kids. Like I have you know, teenagers and actually young adults. Twenty. My oldest is 22 and then 19 and, and 15. Yes. And uh, I'm fascinated by my 19-year-old. Uh, we have deep conversations, but it's always black and white. Yes. And he's he's so, that's um, partly how he's wired, but it's the world we live in. Yes. And and it's constantly reminding him of, of a complexity, yeah. but ultimately trying to get to that place of love that you talked yes. about, that that place where Jesus on a cross is yes. on a cross, not counting their sins against them. You know, yes. God's in Christ reconciling. Yes. That, that is the maybe the best picture of, of how, I mean, would that, be, that would be how I would describe harmony. Is that, is that a fair way to describe? That's, that's beautifully said. Yeah. In fact, what's so beautiful about that is the image of Christ hanging on the cross is an image that's not naive about evil. Yeah. And it's not naive about hate. No kidding. And it's not naive about ignorance because Jesus yeah. is wow. hanging there because of hate and ignorance. Um, uh, but, it, it, it doesn't respond to hate with hate and ignorance with ignorance wow. and evil with evil, but responds to all of that with an all embracing uh, and uh, uh, love that is merciful and kind. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and so it's, it says, I would rather suffer the pains of love than make you suffer the pains wow. of revenge. Wow. Um, yeah. And that to me is, is where we, where we're all being drawn. That's a redefining of justice right there. Yes. That's powerful. I, I only got you for a few more minutes. So if I were sitting and having a coffee with you and you said, Jason, I got three minutes. This is what's burning. I would love for you to share that if there's something on your heart. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm very concerned about global issues like caring for the planet and, and, and caring for the poor and addressing the injustice of economic inequality. And I'm very interested in peace and, and, and turning away from violence, whether that's the violence of war or, or weapons or racism or whatever else. But uh, honestly, uh, if, you're, if I'm to be very honest about what I'm 
what's burning on my heart now is I, I just turned 65 and um, I, I'm, it's funny, you never grow up. <laughs> and uh, I'm at this point now that I feel probably more like a teen- teenager than I've ever felt in the sense that I- I'm entering a new stage of life and I know it's yeah. going to be different than what's come before. And so that's a big thing that's that I'm grappling yeah. with just as a human being right now. Thanks for the vulnerability. I have my dad's uh, just just entered 70 and yeah. and uh, and uh, we have these conversations often. Yeah. Sometimes I say, Dad, I really wish you could figure it out because it make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm behind well, you, you could just say. Yeah, you can just say it's always an adventure. And that's yeah. it. That's exactly yeah. right. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I, before we go any further, I, I, I just want to thank you um, for being such a pioneer and a forerunner and doing it with such grace and kindness and choosing not to defend uh, because it's it's men like you and there's women and men like you that uh, have been running down roads for for myself and for others uh, for so long, even uh, right back to the beginning when I, I re- I'm, a, I'm a fledgling writer and, and a stranger reaches out to me to just cheer me on. I, I'm so grateful for you. Honored to have you on the podcast. I've wanted to have you on since we started it and I've wanted to meet you for years. So, so grateful to connect with you. We call this Rethinking God with Tacos because if we're not gathering around a taco, uh, you know, I mean, it's, let's not take ourselves too seriously here. Uh, That's right. I'm not a smart man. I'm not academic. I'm a relational thinker, and and so uh, that does I do that best over food. Uh, are you a taco guy? Do you have any stories uh, for us for the listener? Oh, uh, listen! When I heard the name of your podcast, it, it makes me happy because I'm a big fan of Mexican food. I don't have a great taco story, but I have a closely related one. I was in. I was in the mountains of Costa Rica once with a friend who lived there, who lives there. And he said, I'm going to take you to something that you'll never see, never get to experience unless you're a local or a guest of a local. That's the best. And he took me to a place called uh, Chicharronera. And uh, Chicharrones are, is like a big vat of fat. And, And you put, hunks of meat in oh. it and then pull it out and eat it. Oh yeah. <laughs> but that vat of fat is stays the same. And you not only put meat, but you put platanos, you know, plantains uh-huh. and yeah, you, yeah. you can put anything in this and fry it basically. <laughs> and so all I'll say is uh, it wasn't exactly a taco, but it was a, a meal that I think took about five years off of my lifespan just because of the carbohydrates. (laughs) But it it was great and something I'll never forget. Uh, That's awesome. I I lived in Mississippi for five years and uh, and I had a friend whose mom would would make bacon and then there was bacon fat and that bacon fat was never changed. And and over the years, it would just grow and grow and everything was cooked in the bacon fat. That's it. So when we went to her house, man, it was good stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's a good story. Um, I, I'm honored to have you on the podcast. Uh, could you just share with us uh, where we can find you? Sure. Um, it, it's just my name, brianmclaren.net. B-R-I-A-N-M-C-L-A-R-E-N.net. Awesome. And we'll have all of that on the on the website and the podcast. Uh, do you have any social media, any way we can follow you that way? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and all of those links are at the website. That's probably the easiest thing. That's the best way to do it. Okay. Really appreciate uh, 
spending some time with you and having you on the podcast. I'll look forward to the next time, maybe in person. Hey guys, we're so glad that you are joining us for season two of Rethinking God with Tacos. Uh, you can find me, Derek Turner, at rivercharlotte.com. That's my church. And I'm on all the social medias yes. as Pastor Derek T. D-E-R-E-K, Pastor Derek T. Yeah, and uh, he's a Twitter savant. you got to follow him on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Jason Clark is. Uh, and you can find all of these podcasts, including season one, on all of the platforms. You can also go to afamilystory.org, and everything's there. If you sign up for our mailing list, we send out a weekly email that has uh, articles, podcast information, and uh, we also let you know about new books coming out or events that we're uh, connected to. So yeah. uh, like, share, retweet, and, uh, and man, if you could write a review, it actually does something for the rankings. It, it, it makes does, it more available. Yeah. So. But a five-star review, of course. <laughs> yes. You know, if you can't write a five-star review or something, <laughs> like just don't even write don't, a review. Don't worry, don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like if you can't say something nice, don't say anything, don't say at, anything all. at all. I, I like that. And then apply that to this podcast. <laughs> Definitely. That's my motto. That's I like what it. I do. I love it. So love you guys. Appreciate you coming on the ride with us. God bless.